Amen. You know, as a teacher and a preacher of the Word of God, there are times when I am influenced by other teachers. There's also times when I desire to teach like other teachers. In many cases, I understand my limitations, and, but I want to be faithful and I want to be effective. But you know, the teacher that I really would like to be like is the master teacher, the Lord Jesus. And I know that's true of every preacher, teacher of the Word of God. As I said, we look at others and we glean and we get some help and understanding. But it's the master teacher that we sit under, and that's Jesus. As we have been studying the Gospel of Mark, we have learned that Jesus taught in various places like the synagogue, he taught by the seashore, he taught around villages, he taught in the temple. In other words, he taught everywhere he went. He also taught daily in the temple. And to the disappointment of the scribes and Pharisees, he taught on the Sabbath. We know from Mark's gospel also that he taught in parables. And we also know in chapter 8, verse 32, he taught plainly so that the meaning was obvious. But only two times in the gospel of Mark do we hear specifically what he taught. That's because Mark focused on the deeds of Jesus more than on his teachings. And so as we even look at other places, other Gospels, the other three, we understand that there are discourses that are found there, lengthy discourses that Mark omitted. But again, he was giving a brief gist of Christ's teaching. The two places I'm talking about where he specifically taught in Mark about something, one was on Mark 8.31, where Mark says that he began to teach them, that is the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then the second place is in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12, where he taught on divorce. So the question is, is what did he teach the people? What did he teach the disciples that Mark doesn't mention? I mean, we know in Mark 1.13 that we hear Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so to really answer that question, I'm going to have to go outside of Mark and have you to turn to Matthew. So let me have you to go to Matthew chapter 5. And for the next few weeks or so, we're going to look here in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at what is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes take up the first 12 verses of chapter 5. Now, there are other things he taught that are in chapters 5, 6, and 7. In fact, it's all one sermon. And he did this on what is traditionally called now the Mount of Beatitudes. That's one of the reasons why I started out with a video, so that you could get kind of a picture of what it looked like as he taught on that hill. 
And as the people sat there on the slope, and in the backdrop was the Sea of Galilee. And if you were to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you would find that in that one sermon that he references different things from the scenery that everyone was enjoying on that day. But as we look at what Jesus taught in these verses, we have to say that the setting here is where Jesus is giving foundational truths of the gospel of the kingdom, and he's doing it in one powerful, comprehensive, but yet compact message. And as I said, this is uh, traditionally referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, because, again, it covers three chapters. Now, as we begin just to introduce this, I want to read a statement by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and this is how he viewed the Sermon on the Mount. He says, There is nothing so utterly condemns us as the Sermon on the Mount. There is nothing so utterly impossible, so terrifying, and so full of doctrine. Indeed, I do not hesitate to say that were it not that I knew of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, I would never look at the Sermon on the Mount. Because it is a sermon before which we all stand completely naked, altogether without hope. Far from being something practical that we can take up and put into practice, it is of all teaching the most impossible if we are left to ourselves. This great sermon is full of doctrine and leads to doctrine. It's a kind of prologue to all the doctrine of the New Testament. So as we look at this this morning and for the next few weeks, we're going to see and understand why he makes a statement like that. But for today, I want us to be introduced to the preacher that we find in the first two verses. And before we even do that, let me go ahead and read the first 12 verses. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven." For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you'll look back at the first two verses, because that's all we'll look at today, we're introduced to the preacher, the one who gave these wonderful words. He's identified six times in verse 1. Matthew refers to him by these pronouns. He says, he went up, he was seated, His disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and taught them. 
Now we know who it is because verse 1 says it was Jesus. And also verse 23 of chapter 4 tells us that it was Jesus. It says Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And when you examine the preacher in this passage, you learn three things about him. The first thing you learn is that he was an intelligent preacher. John 3.34 tells us that he had the spirit without measure. In other words, he spoke the words of God. And he also understood what doctrine or what teaching would best suit his audience. You know, sometimes when I'm teaching or when you and I are sharing and talking to someone, we don't always know what exactly to say. We don't always know what illustration to use from Scripture or what passage to point to. Maybe that will help elucidate the situation that we're confronting. But Jesus knew how to answer everyone. In fact, he knew how to do it so much so that sometimes when he answered, the people dared not ask him any other questions. Other times they were humiliated by his answers. Because again, he knew the heart of every man. He knew the motive by which they would question him. And many times their questions to him were to trap him. But we see here that he was an intelligent preacher. Again, he knew what people needed to hear, and he knew what was in their way to hearing it. As I said a moment ago, he spoke in parables, and even the disciples asked a question in Matthew 13 too, Why do you speak to them in parables? Because even the disciples at times didn't even understand the parables. They had to ask him, what did you mean by that? And let alone the crowds. And of course he responded by saying it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But not to them. To them it has not been given. Them was referring to the multitudes of the people. Them was referring to the unbelievers in that multitude. The multitudes that were gathered before him. Over in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 4, and we looked at a reference to this in Mark's gospel. He knew the hearts of his hearers. It says in Matthew 9, 4, when the multitudes brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. You remember that? And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. And now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Jesus knew every thought 
Jesus knows every thought from us as well. I mean, even the psalmist says in Psalm 139 that the knowledge was too great for him to, to even understand, to comprehend that when he would rise up or when he would sit down or when he would lie down, that God knew everything about him. And God was very acquainted, intimately acquainted with all of his ways. That there was nothing hidden from his sight. And again, the same is true for each one of us. And it was certainly true of all the people that Jesus encountered. In fact, it says in John 2, 23, that he knew all men. And he knew what was in man. And that's why those who had come to him and attached themselves to him because of the miracles that he had done, he knew why they did that. And so he didn't commit himself to them. They didn't believe for the right reasons. And you know, that temptation is true today. Some people attach themselves to Christ only for what benefits they can get from Christ. Some do it as what we would call fire insurance. They want to make sure that they're not going to go to hell. But the only problem sometimes in those situations is they don't do any more than that. They pray a prayer, they walk an aisle, they sign a card, they join a church, they get baptized, and that's it. Maybe they come to church for a little while and they leave for whatever reason. Certainly you could go to Matthew 13 and look at the parable of the soil as Jesus gave that parable and then he applied it to the receptions of the heart that each time we present the gospel it falls on one of four hearts that are in that passage but only one of them illustrated that they were saved because they understood the word the others didn't understand it they attached themselves to Christ for the various reasons but but when the word became choked out because of the cares of the world or for other reasons they left but Jesus was an intelligent preacher. In fact, Thomas Watson says this about him. He says, as an intelligent preacher, Jesus knew how to speak a word in due season. When to humble, when to comfort. We cannot know all the faces of our hearers. Christ knew the hearts of his hearers. He understood what doctrine would best suit them as the husbandman can tell what sort of grain is proper for such and such a soil. So that's the first thing that I want you to keep in mind as we begin to study what we have here in Matthew 5 in the first 12 verses. The second thing that I would say about him is that he was a powerful preacher. He was a powerful preacher. He spoke with authority. The only authority by which I can speak is the authority of Scripture. That's it. I don't have any other authority outside of that. But Jesus did have that authority, and he also spoke with authority. In fact, when he finishes this sermon, go with me to chapter 7, and I want you to notice how the crowd reacted. Look at verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. 
say, well, what, what does that mean, not as the scribes? Well, the scribes were always quoting somebody. They would quote another rabbi. Jesus didn't need to quote anybody. He was the authority. This was his word. And he was the embodiment of the word of God. And so when you hear phrases like in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, Jesus is the very embodiment of the Word of God. That's why he's called the Word in John 1.1 and also in 1 John. He taught them as one having authority. And we could illustrate that, of course, in other places. Uh, If you will, go over to Matthew chapter 8. You were already close there. Just go down to verse 23. It tells us that when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. I like that, don't you? And they came to him, and they woke him. And they said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why Are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. (laughs) Verse 27 is an understatement. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Uh, The answer to the question that we know is that he was more than a man. He was the God-man. But you'll notice the authority that he had there. And that's why he was sleeping in the boat. If anybody trusted the Father, he did. But the disciples were there afraid. These guys, most of them were professional professional fishermen, Peter, James, and John. This is what they did for a living before Christ called them to full-time ministry. They knew the waters. They had been on them and in them. Many, many times. They had fished all night and caught nothing. And then, of course, Jesus says, go back out and let your nets on the other side of the boat. Well, you're a fisherman. That doesn't make any sense because whether the net falls down on the left side or the right side, is still under the boat. And it's only separated by just a few feet of each other. But they knew the Lord and they wanted to obey the Lord. And the very moment that they did that, God rerouted all the fish right there to their nets, and they pulled them into the boats, and they had to get the other men to come and help them, and their boats were about to sink because they had so many fish. And Peter, seeing this, Lord, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. That's usually the reaction that came from the words of Christ, the reaction that came from things that he would say, things that he did. Again, Mark is focusing on the deeds, whereas we get into some of the other Gospels and they focus on what he exactly taught. There's another place, of course, and this will back us up in Mark and really bring us back to a story that we already looked at, and that's in chapter 1 and verse 23. And if you remember that they were in Capernaum, it was a Sabbath, They were in the synagogue, and Jesus began to teach. And as he's teaching, they're amazed. 
Because he's teaching them as one having authority, and again, not as the scribes. But then, all of a sudden, he's interrupted while he's teaching by a man in the synagogue that had an unclean spirit and was crying out, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And again, they were all amazed that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with what? Authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Everything and everyone will obey him, either now or in hell, in eternity. We certainly will have perfect obedience in heaven. But it's, again, amazing when you see his power. Let me show you another one. And uh, that's in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And look with me at verse 16. The story here is with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. Jesus is there at the well. The woman comes to draw the water, and he says to her, give me a drink. And they have this discourse back and forth, and he even tells her, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, that you would ask him to give you living water. And, of course, her response was, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And and then he said to her, Well, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And this you have said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, why would she say that? Well, because he is revealing to her things about her life that he wouldn't know about as a mere man. In fact, when she goes and tells the people in the town in which she lives, she says, Come, verse 29, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Messiah, is it? She had the right thoughts. Again, Thomas Watson said, Christ was a preacher to the conscience. He breathed as much zeal as eloquence. He often touched upon the heartstrings. What is said of Luther is more truly applicable to Christ. He spake as if he had been within a man. He could drive the wedge of his doctrine in the most knotty place. He was able with his two-edged sword to pierce an heart of stone. John seven forty six. Never man spake like this man. No one ever spoke like he did. And so he was a powerful preacher. A third thing I would say about him is that he was also a successful preacher. Now, when I look at myself and I look at these very things that I would see of Christ, uh, 
I don't speak with authority. The only authority I do speak with is the scripture, and that's the authority. I'm not really that intelligent, and I lack power. (laughs) I can't do these things, and I don't know any other preacher who can. We're not living in the time, the biblical times, when others like the apostles or the associates of the apostles were able to do some of these miraculous deeds. But he was also a successful preacher. He knew the heart of every person, and he also initiated and carried out the conversion of the soul. And I I can't do that, definitely can't do that, don't want to try to do that, don't want to deceive anybody in thinking I could do that, because it's only Jesus that can save. You know, this is why it is so dangerous in the circles in which we are in that when you do encounter a person giving their life to Jesus, that you never, ever want to tell them that, well, if you ever doubt whether you're saved, you need to go back to this moment in time and just remember what happened so that you're not confused or doubting your salvation. Listen, what if what happened right then didn't really happen? What if it wasn't real? What if that person really did not get saved, but later on they're convicted and thinking, I didn't get saved then. I'm getting saved now. I've heard of preachers doing that very thing. Been in the ministry. Been, quote, in Christ for well over a number of years, 20 plus years or so, and then... Somewhere in that little time period, get saved. Heard that happening? And I'll just tell you, you know, when you are studying the Scriptures, as I am studying the Scriptures, and sometimes you read things in the Scriptures that begin to make you scratch your own head, right? Right? Not that you've lost your salvation or anything like that, but the Scripture is so profound. The Scripture is so cutting to the heart. And even the very temptations that you give in, sometimes you may say, how could I do stuff like this? How could I respond this way if I really am saved? And then doubt begins to happen. Well, he did preach in such a way that many people did believe in him, and that's only because he enabled them to do that. See, I, I like to, to, to err on this side of salvation, that God is responsible for everything about it. And then as I look at Scripture, I see that backed up. He is the one who's responsible for salvation. He's the one who had grace poured into his lips, he could pour grace into his hearts, the hearts of his hearers. He had the key of David in his hand, and when he pleased, did open the hearts of men and make way both for himself and his doctrine to enter. That's our Savior. He had that kind of power. He had that kind of intelligence. 
and he was successful. If Jesus was focused on healing a man, that man would be 100% healed. If Jesus was focused on delivering a person from the bondage of Satan and casting them out, that's exactly what happened. If Jesus was focused on, like in John 3 with Nicodemus and telling Nicodemus that he must be born again, guess what's going to happen to Nicodemus? He's going to be born again. When Jesus centers in on your life and presents to you the gospel of the kingdom, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be transformed. Because the decision ultimately is not yours, it's His. Now I know Scripture teaches that we are to repent, we are to believe, but Scripture also teaches that repentance and belief are gifts of God. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And also, there's a passage in Timothy where... Paul talks about God granting repentance. So those are gifts. So the preacher is unlike any other preacher. The preacher is unlike any other prophet that ever spoke. No man ever spoke like him. And no one was as successful, powerful, and intelligent as him. Notice next the pulpit. It says he went up on the mountain. You know, it's interesting that when you go into Exodus 19 and 20, when you have the giving of the Ten Commandments, guess where it took place? It took place on what? A mountain. The law was first given on the mount. It's interesting that here on what is traditionally called the Mount of the Beatitudes today, that this is where he expounded the law. He expounded it on the mount. So the mountain was the pulpit for the greatest sermon ever preached. Jerome, who was one of the greatest scholars of the early Christian church, lived around AD 420, he said this, that this mountain was Mount Tabor. Others said that it had no name until Jesus preached there. Until then, it had been but one of the many hills that sloped gently from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was now the mountain sanctified and set apart by the presence of the Lord called the Mount of Beatitudes. Again, where was this at? Well, this was the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. You remember the video we were just watching? And you saw that beautiful landscape, that hill, and as it went down, what was in the background? The beautiful Sea of Galilee. Now notice the occasion. It says here that he saw the crowds. He saw the multitudes. The multitudes were the occasion for this message. And they had consisted, if you go back to verse 23 of chapter 4, of all those who had been sick, not just people that were sick, but also well people, but 
Those who had had all kinds of diseases, those who had been afflicted with various diseases and torments, they were those that were also demon-possessed, there were those that were epileptics and paralectics. So those were those who needed a healing from the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were also people there that didn't have any kind of physical handicap. And they were there too, but every one of them had a spiritual handicap. So there were great multitudes... Verse 25 says that they were from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, from beyond the Jordan. So Matthew begins verse 1 by telling us Jesus saw the crowds. He saw the multitudes. One commentator says that Jesus was always concerned for the multitudes, for whom he had great compassion, whether they were distressed and downcast, sick, hungry, or in any other need, whether the people were physically ill or healthy, emotionally stable or demon-possessed, financially poor or rich, politically oppressed or powerful, religiously insignificant or influential, intellectually ignorant or educated. Jesus had compassion on them. And He attracted all strata of people because He loved them all. So when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. And this is why he taught and preached to them. He gave them what they needed to hear. This is also why he healed them. Because he had compassion. He cared. This is also why in Matthew 15, he fed them. Look over at Matthew 15, verse 32. It says, Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And then his disciples said to him, Well, where can we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few little fish. And so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the multitude so that they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, came to the region of Magdala. So that's the feeding of the 4,000. But what's interesting is he had already fed 5,000 in Matthew 14. It says in Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion for them and he healed their Sick, And then it tells us in verse 21, the multitude consisted of about 5,000 men besides women and children. So he not only healed them, but he fed them. Even if you back up to chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 35, when it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no 
shepherd. He had compassion on them. He cared about them. In Matthew 20, verse 29 and following, there were two blind men sitting by the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. But the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still, called to them, and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. You say, well, weren't there some people he didn't have compassion on? Well, you know, even the rulers as he confronted them in their hypocrisy was being compassionate to them because anytime you confront someone in their hypocrisy, someone in their sin, you are having compassion on them because what is the most tragic thing for them is to remain in that state and most likely not even be saved and die and go to hell. That's not compassion. And anytime we do not present the gospel to lost people, we're not having compassion on them. But Jesus had compassion, and he had compassion on all people. And let me show you one of the ones that you maybe wouldn't be sure he had compassion on, and it's found in John 13. Go to John 13. John 13 And verse 18, notice what he says here. He says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. This caught the disciples off guard for sure. Because look at their response, verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Who is it? One of us is going to betray you? Who? They thought they knew each other. There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's how the Apostle John always referred to himself. He never names himself. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was enough for him. So Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. And so he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, 
that it is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. And no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things that we have need of for the feast or else he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Well, in Matthew 26, after Judas had betrayed to the religious leaders, the Lord Jesus, and telling where he would be at so that they could come and arrest him. In Matthew 26, beginning at verse 45, Jesus had been praying. In verse 45, he comes to his disciples and he says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hell, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, look at what he said, Friend, do what you have come for. Look how he addressed him. This is his betrayer. What did he call him? Friend. That was almost like a jolt, like a reminder to Judas of all that he had witnessed about Jesus. All the love and compassion that he'd received from Jesus. It was almost like an opportunity for Judas not to follow through with this. Friend. In Psalm 55, there's a prophecy that speaks about this. Psalm 55, verse 12 and following, it says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. This wasn't just anybody. This was a friend. And usually the people that hurt us the most are friends. Or family. Right? But he had compassion on Judas before Judas was even, or even while Judas is carrying out his betrayal. He loved Judas. In fact, the scripture tells us about Judas, it would have been better if he had never been born. You know, sometimes we use that phrase when we're really having a hard time in our trials, and we say, sometimes I wish I was never born. You ever said that? Over in John chapter 8, we see another person that he had compassion on. Let me just highlight a few of them. John chapter 8, 
It says in verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. You know, it kind of makes you wonder, did they set her up? Because how do you catch someone like that in the very act, unless you had something to do with it? And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act, and now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? <laughs> They're very compassionate, aren't they? John says they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But I love Jesus' response. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Some scholars believe that he was writing the names of her accusers. Verse 9, when they had heard this, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman, where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Sin no more. That's compassion. Is it not? The law said she had to be stoned to death. But Jesus was the fulfillment of that law. And if anything you're going to see in the Beatitudes is that he goes to the very heart of the issue. Because it's so easy for us to deal with externals and never deal with the internals of our own life. We go and clean up the outward parts of our life. But we don't deal with the internals. Jesus is after the heart. That's why he says you know, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that tells me right there, if I'm to love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I am also to believe in Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I demonstrate this by doing what the second greatest commandment is. It's to love my neighbor as myself. Let me give you another one. It's found in Luke 23. And this is when Jesus is on the cross. Luke 23, beginning at verse 39. It says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so he had compassion on that one hanging there, condemned with him. The other man did not want to repent, did not want to acknowledge Jesus for who he is, did not want to acknowledge the 
holiness and the righteousness of Christ. So he perished in hell. The other man, when he died, immediately went to paradise. Paradise, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, is called the third heaven where God dwells. So, beloved, I take these three accounts and I apply from that that we also need to have the same compassion that Christ had. We need to care as He cared. Colossians 3.12 tells us, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering. Or 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. We need to care like He cared. We need to love like He loved. He did more than say kind words. He went out of His way to meet a person's need. And we need this kind of love. This is sacrificial love. Our love, according to Romans 12.9, is to be without hypocrisy. We need to have compassion, according to James 1.27, on orphans and widows in their trouble because this is pure and undefiled religion. Over in James chapter 2, he illustrates compassion on brothers and sisters in need when he asks, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? You gotta have compassion. And you gotta take your compassion to the next step and be a doer of the word. Meet that person's need, just like John says in 1 John 3:17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? See, he's questioning the very love of God in a person's heart if they just close their compassion to someone who is in need. But I have to tell you that the greatest compassion, the greatest compassion is what we see right here. If you look back at Matthew 5, look at verse 2. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. That's the greatest compassion right there. All the others are physical needs and they can be met and anybody can meet them. But sitting under the master teacher, teaching and telling me what I need to come into the kingdom. That's real compassion. He had compassion for their physical needs. We know that. We already read that, how he healed, how he cast out demons. But it didn't stop there. He had compassion for their spiritual needs. That's the greatest need anybody has. Spiritual need. One commentator says, Everything Jesus said on this occasion was spoken publicly to the multitudes. His intention was to drive them to a recognition of their sin. And thus, 
and thus to the need of a Savior, which he had come to be. Until they believed in him, the demands of the sermon could only show them how terribly far they were from meeting God's standards. This masterful evangelistic sermon is designed to confront men with their desperate condition of sinfulness. That's compassion. And by the way, Matthew speaking of Jesus opening his mouth and beginning to teach them, that's not a superfluous statement of the obvious, but it's a common colloquialism that was used to introduce a message that was especially solemn and important. It was used to indicate an intimate, heartfelt testimony or sharing. Because when you examine his sermon here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it was both authoritative and intimate. It was one of the utmost importance, and it was delivered with the utmost concern. In this sermon, our Lord establishes a standard of living counter to everything that the world practices and holds dear. To live by the standards that he gives here is to live a life of blessed happiness. This is a new approach to living, one that results in joy instead of despair. One that results in peace instead of conflict. A peace that the world does not understand. A peace that the world cannot even have. It's a blessedness not produced by the world or by circumstances, and it can't be taken away by the world or by circumstances. It's not produced externally, and it cannot be destroyed externally. So, beloved, when we talk about the kind of preacher that Jesus was, we see he was an intelligent preacher who understood his audience. He was a powerful preacher who spoke with authority. He revealed man's sin and had the power to forgive it. And he was a successful preacher because he would lead people to himself and grant them eternal life. And he was also a compassionate preacher. He met both their physical and their spiritual needs. You know, sometimes we're presented with things just like that. How many times have you been outside of a store? Maybe you're going in or coming out. Someone stops you and asks you for some money. Or been at the gas pump. Somebody does the same thing, asks you for some help. My goodness, I think today we see more and more people on the roads at the red lights asking for help. Some don't really need it. Some are professional panhandlers. But I'll tell you what, there was a guy out there one day. Uh, he only had one leg. And I would be more apt to help that man <laughs> because I can see his condition. I can see that he does have a legitimate need here. Whereas the others, when I look at them, unfortunately, I see something much different. Not everyone, but a big majority of them. Or you could be like the one guy. We were coming home one night from somewhere that we had went. We 
took the off-ramp, got down to the light. The guy had a sign up. He says, I just need a beer. Well, at least he was honest with what he was going to do with the money, right? Because most of the time they tell you that they have some kind of need and that's really what they're wanting to do. Beloved, the greatest need is salvation. That's the greatest need. We need to get that in our mind. That's what people need. That's what everyone in this room. That's why I pray many times that if somebody's in here that doesn't know Jesus, hasn't come to a, a saving relationship with Jesus, you've you got to repent. You've got to believe in Christ. Or you'll never be saved. Jesus gives you the invitation. He says, come to me, all who are weary and all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And so my prayer is that today. You don't have to walk an aisle to get saved. You can sit right where you are and repent and give your life to Jesus. He'll save you right where you are. You know, I didn't get saved in a church. I got saved at a house where a friend of mine came and shared the gospel where I was at. I didn't come into a church until after I got saved. But beloved, He can save you right where you are. But we also have to understand the urgency of this gospel. Nobody has promised Tomorrow, Nobody's promised the next few minutes. I think that if we knew when the day and the hour was, when we would die, people would get more serious with the things of God, I think, maybe, maybe not. Because they would think more soberly about it, that I'm fixing to die and I'm fixing to go stand before God. But no, the rest... They just live their life and they think, well, you know, i got time. i got plenty of time. I'll tell you what, folks, time ain't on our side. You're not promised that kind of time. You've been given the truth. You need to have the right response to it. So as I said, when we started, we're going to take some time and look at the Beatitudes because I want you to see some of the things that Jesus taught, and especially as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Because again, we're seeing the deeds of Christ. We're not hearing everything He taught, but we hear it right here. And let's focus in on this for just a little while as we continue our study of Christ. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity that we've had today to look at your word. And we just pray today that I pray today, Lord, for those who don't have eternal life, don't have salvation because they've never repented. They've never surrendered their heart to you. Open their heart right now, I pray, and save them. Help them to see their need of forgiveness. Help them to see that they're crushed under the power of the law that condemns them and that the only thing they have to look forward to is the wrath of God, not the grace of God.
So have grace on them as you have today by letting them hear it.